The following episode contains several depictions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Then the media descended, which was a persistent nuisance for two years. But I kept searching. We went back to the office. I called everybody. His mother insisted on coming by the house. I didn't sleep much that whole week. And then I got a second call. And Detective Landeros asked, said, I'm coming by to pick you up. And I knew this was probably it because that's a pretty unusual thing to say. And so I got on the car with her and went down again to police headquarters. And basically what they said was that uh, they had found a body, they believed it was him, and she was going to take me to the morgue. It was like it wasn't real. I, I kept thinking, you're wrong. He's not a violent person. He doesn't own a gun. He doesn't get in fights. You've got the wrong person. And, and Detective Landero said that's one of the reasons we want you to identify him, because it'll show you he's never coming home. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. I love the true crime genre, be it in film, books, TV, or even podcasts. There's always something that's so deeply alluring about it all. You have the long and winding mysteries, the dark and malicious characters, or the secrets that are just waiting to be uncovered. And when it comes to the end with the big twist and the grand reveal, boy, can it be ever so satisfying. However, I must admit that as with most pieces of media, you do need to maintain a certain level of detachment. That despite the genre being called true crime and covering real-life cases, their focus is often far from the whole truth. They will spend hours and hours zooming into every microscopic detail and psychoanalyzing every single character, but once the case is solved and the criminals captured, the focus simply shifts away to something else. Reality, of course, proves to be much more nuanced. And no more is this the case than for the actual victims of true crime, the communities, the family members, and especially the loved ones left behind. Because for these victims, the suffering doesn't end when the detective cracks the case and puts the criminal behind bars. Or in other words, the real impact of true crime cannot be fully examined within the vacuum of a case file. Grief and trauma often linger on, and lives once affected can never return to a sense of normalcy that they once knew. This is the other reality of true crime, a reality that exists outside of the detectives, the TV show, or the podcast, and a reality that is often hidden and rarely examined. In this season two finale episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast, we take a look at this other reality with the story of Jan Canty, someone who was a victim of true crime and who decided to speak out after 30 years of silence. 
Our story begins with our guest Jan and her love of books and writing. I've always thought of books as my friends. <laughs> I like reading and writing. So in school, that's where I excelled, was in English and writing kinds of activities. And yet, totally, I was turned off to high school. I felt like I was being babysitted. I didn't like it at all. And I didn't envision going to college, but I tried a class. I, I tried an English class, actually, and just loved it and found out it was nothing like high school. It wasn't about spitwads and discipline and cliques at all. This love for writing led Jan to try out an English college course and subsequently to transfer to Wayne State University for her bachelor's degree. And that's about the time, I think I was in my second year of my associate degree, I was transferring to Wayne State University, which is in downtown Detroit, because I had decided maybe I was capable of getting a bachelor's degree. I wasn't sure at that point because I didn't know anybody that had been to college. This would be where Jan meets our other main character for this story, the psychologist Alan Kenty. He was a psychologist in the downtown area, very close to Wayne State University, and was searching for a typist for a book he was writing. So it kind of fell into my lap, and it was such close proximity, it was perfect. It started out just like any other part-time gig. Alan was the middle-aged psychologist looking for a typist, and Jan was the eager college student who just happened to be around the area. But soon enough, their relationship would start to develop. Alan was very supportive of Jan's academic pursuits and took on a sort of mentor role. And about a year into their working relationship, they started dating and eventually got married. This despite their significant age gap and a not-so-favorable first impression. My very early impression of him was he was kind of a fuddy-duddy. <laughs> he was, he didn't dress well. He made poor eye contact. And he was very disorganized. His office was a mess. But he was very humble, very supportive. And uh, I liked how he talked about other people in his life, even his divorced former spouse. He was very kind in talking about her. Mm. And, you know, the, your friends or family, were they aware of this relationship? What did they think of, you know, Dr. Kenty and then the, the age gap? They weren't wild about it, mm. truthfully. They were like, really? Partly because of the age difference, because it was 18 years is considerable. Mm. And partly because I am outgoing. I liked art. I liked traveling. I liked being out and about, and he wasn't any of those things. That was their initial kind of are you sure reaction. And then another incident that happened, he had a car ha hobby. He liked to restore cars, or so he talked about. But mm. in reality, he didn't do much about it. It was more like collecting parts, and they sat around in boxes. And my dad is very good in mechanics, and he was trying to have a conversation with Al about rebuilding cars. And Al couldn't hold his own. Not that my dad was competitive at all, but he thought this was something they could share in common. My mm. dad was trying to bridge this gap and find a way to relate to him, but he could tell that Al was bluffing. And they gently pointed it out to me, but I kind of brushed it off. I'm like, you don't understand him. He's He's got so much going for him, and I feel so special when I'm around him. So I didn't really heed anybody's warning at all. And so... Things just proceeded smoothly. 
Alan continued with his work as a psychologist, while Jan went on to get a bachelor's in English and psychology, and would thereafter spend most of her time around academia as she looked to further her education. I was very happy.、Uh, he was hands off in terms of managing me. He was never abrupt. He was never physical. He didn't、uh, drink to excess. He didn't gamble. He was generous. And I spent, as you may know, graduate school takes a lot of your time, and I was commuting on top of that, an hour and a half each way. So it was constant. It was a lot of demands on my time, which I think some spouses could be put off by because it, it takes time away from them. But he never was. He never showed resentment, and it was very comfortable for me. This would continue for about ten years, at which point Ellen's dad would pass away. And he started to become a bit more withdrawn. So he was spending a lot of time with his widowed mom, and he was just withdrawn and and a little bit irritable and hands off, like go do what you want to do, kind of not in a good way. I didn't know what was going on. I I just kept thinking it'll pass, whatever it is. I and I know that relationships have ebbs and flows in them, and we hadn't had any up till that point in time. So I wasn't like freaking out or anything. And I was so enthused about building my career too that, in retrospect, that it made our relationship worse because I would start to question him about things like the neuroplasticity of of how people are,、uh, what we know now about how people can change. And he didn't want to hear any of that. And so I stopped talking to him about cases too. Which up to that point in time, I'd always enjoyed doing. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, things would start to take a turn for the worst. The year was 1985. It was a hot summer's morning in the middle of July, and that would be the last time that Jan ever saw Ellen again. Yeah, and that day started out like any other day, except in the morning. I walked. It was a hot, muggy day already in the morning, and I walked him out and said goodbye, and、uh, walked back in and sat down to have a cup of coffee. And he came back in, and kind of out of the blue, he says to me, "I'm sorry." And I said, "You mean for being abrupt?" I, I wasn't sure what he was referring to. He hadn't. Nothing jumped out at me why he should apologize. And he says, "Well, I, I love you," and he left, and I didn't say anything back. At that point in time, I wasn't. I was starting to fall out of love with him, and I didn't want to lie, so I just nodded and he left. And then that day, about noon, a terrible storm started whipping up in the Detroit area. We had sustained winds of 30 miles an hour and gusts twice that. We had hail, a torrential rain. I mean, it was just flowing off the gutters. Our power started going in and out. And he called me at three o'clock, and I urged him to come home because the roads would be bad. And flooded, and oh, I'll be fine. And that's so like him; he just dismisses things. And so、uh, he said, "Let's have hamburgers for dinner." And I'm like, "Okay." And and he was always pretty punctual. So I got got dinner ready, and I started watching a three-hour special on TV, which made me lose track of time. And I looked up, and suddenly it was dark outside, and he wasn't home. And I panicked because it was not like him, and the weather was bad. I started calling around, and nobody could help me. So about midnight or eleven o'clock at night, around that time frame, I called my next door neighbor and asked him if he would drive me down to his office, to Al's office, 
to see if he had signed out because that was the requirement after 6 p.m. And he did. There was no sign of him anywhere. And so I, I just stayed up all night, basically, that first night. I, I slept sitting up in a chair with the phone on my lap and waited for him to call. I left all the outside lights on and I never heard from him again. Yeah, and uh, so you would get informed of what happened a few days afterwards. Yeah, a week went by. I tried to re- to file a missing persons report and that didn't go anywhere. They were quite rude, actually. And so the fourth day in, I contacted my mother-in-law who contacted the people she knew in City Hall and they got a search underway. And I was still in the dark. I didn't know where they were searching or what they were looking for. But suddenly I got a phone call about a week later from a detective, Marlis Landeros, and she asked me to meet her down at the Detroit headquarters for the police. Hmm. And I said, okay. So my parents came with me. By then they had flown in from Arizona and stayed with me. So the three of us went down to see the inspector, uh, Gil Hill, and he was he's a man of very few words he's kind of right to the point and basically what he said was that they had reason to believe that my husband had been killed although they didn't have his body yet hmm. and that he'd been seen on a number of occasions in this uh, house this alley house is what they called it in downtown detroit on casper street and at that point i it kind of faded in and out and i don't remember everything that he said to me so the three of us left that day still kind of in limbo because at that point in history, you know, this is prior to DNA, what we have today and other forms of evidence, there had never been a conviction of murder of anybody without a body. So you know, we just left and tried to figure out what the heck was our next move. So what happened after this? What did you do? Then the media descended, which was a persistent nuisance for two years. But mm. I kept searching. We went back to the office. I called everybody. Uh, his mother insisted on coming by the house. I didn't sleep much that whole week. And then I got a second call from Detective. It was on a Sunday morning, very early. And Detective Landeros asked, said, I'm coming by to pick you up. Mm. And I knew this was probably it because that's a pretty unusual thing to say. And so I got on the car with her and went down again to police headquarters. And we got up to the fifth floor and Gil Hill was there. And basically what they said was that uh, they had found a body, they believed it was him, and she was going to take me to the morgue. like it wasn't real. I, I kept thinking, you're wrong. He's not a violent person. He doesn't own a gun. He doesn't get in fights. This doesn't make sense. He has no association with the people you're talking about. I've never heard their names. I don't know anything about Casper, the street. Um, he works all the time. He's home or he's at, at work. So you've got the wrong person. And and Detective Landero said that's one of the reasons we want you to identify him, because it'll show you he's never coming home. But on the way to the morgue, which was not far, it was a few blocks, but she drove, 
uh, I also learned that he had been dismembered, and he had been buried in a bog up in northern Michigan in Petoskey. So it was a pretty awful environment where he had been lodged for a week. They exhumed him, and he was in three suitcases. They brought his body parts back to the morgue, and that's where they brought me in to identify his head. And um, at first I couldn't get out of my chair when she said, come on, let's, you know, it's behind this wall. This is what you're going to see. All I want you to do is say yes or no. That's all you have to do is say yes, it's him, or no, it's not. And I could not stand up. It wasn't that I wasn't willing. I just, my feet felt like numb, my legs. I And uh, my dad kept offering to do it for me, and she said, no, we need her to do it for the legal process, but you can come with her if you really want to. And my mom was kind of on the fence. I said, Mom, you don't need to do this. Let's not get three of us involved. This is bad enough as it is. So with my dad on one side of me lifting me up and Detective Landeros on the other, it was probably just 30 feet behind this wall. And at first, I, when, they, when I opened my eyes, I, I couldn't talk. And she said, you have to verbally say yes or no. And I said yes, and then she just said, turn, she turned me around and was going to take her back, take me back outside, but the um, press had assembled. This, even though this was very early in the morning, they'd assembled on the front step of the morgue with their cameras out and so on. So we went out the back route, and uh, she had me lay down in the back of her car. Oddly, I don't remember my where my parents were at that point, but... I just remember going home at that point in time, and and uh, my dad and my mom took over for a while because I didn't care if I ate. I didn't want to answer the door. I didn't want to answer the phone. I sure didn't want to talk to the press. And there was nothing more that I could say. I mean, I wasn't involved in the crime. I didn't know these people, so I was of no help that in that way. And and so basically, I just let them handle what they could at that point in time. And they, thankfully, they left me alone when I needed to be left alone. Usually grief, you know, death of a loved one is already difficult to handle, but to face uh, grief in such a, a morbid way, right? What was it like for you initially in those first few first few days? I kept having nightmares <clears throat> about what I saw because he didn't look like himself. I mean, he didn't have his eyeglasses on. His face was swollen. There was, it was very disfigured. And I just kept thinking, who could do this? I, this is so vicious. It's not something a human being does to another human being. And part of me kept trying to reject it, like, this can't, like I'd stepped into somebody else's life is how it felt. Like, this isn't my, I, do, I have my nose in books <laughs> to go from that extreme to this. It was like I stepped into somebody else's life and, and um, I, I was dumbfounded. I was exhausted. I stopped eating. Uh, I was barely functional. And my, my mom would say, you need to eat. You need to shower you need to do this, you need to do that. And my dad was like taking care of answering the phone in the door and going to the store and sleeping downstairs. I mean, we were worried at that point in time that they'd caught everybody or not. We didn't know. I felt like a robot for 
a couple months at least. Uh, I wasn't functioning well at all. I lost about 20, 30 pounds and uh, lost some of my hair actually in the process. It just fell out and uh, was very irritable, uh, not with my parents, but I did not want to talk to anybody. And the media was just relentless, relentless. We changed the phone number many, many times and it didn't stop. And reporters were would go to any lengths. We had to get through the funeral service. As the eulogy was finished, I stood up to leave, and a reporter shoved it. They were all over inside the, the um, funeral home, even though I'd asked the undertaker not to allow them on the premises. He did. And they were there with their cameras and lights, and they shoved them right in my face as I stood up to leave. And I, my, my friend gave me the keys to his car, and he said, just take my car and go home. And I did. And I went and locked the doors. And it was like that was my my swan song in a sense in that I've done my last duty as his wife now. I'm done. This is it. I don't want anything more to do with him or with this ugliness. And I just want to be left alone is how I felt. In a matter of just a few weeks, Jan's life had been completely turned on its head. The then-aspiring academic was suddenly thrust into the middle of a gruesome murder case. She had to deal with the non-stop media harassment, the trauma of having to identify the body, and the constant anxiety running through her head. At her husband's funeral, Jan thought that that would be the end of it all, that the media circus would just move on and allow her the space to do the same. But unfortunately for Jan, the case was only just beginning to unravel. It was several months later when, through persistence, I had a reporter that wanted to write his first book, persistent contacting me. Finally, I said, okay, I'll meet with you once. He sat down and he, he had done quite a bit of research and he, he started laying it out and saying, this is who this person is and that's who that person was and this is what was going on and why you have no money. And and I felt like he was introducing me to my husband. It was like, what? That doesn't, you're talking about the wrong person. I mean, I still couldn't absorb it. It was like, this isn't the man I know. But he kept showing me evidence and he kept talking. And, and finally, it started sinking in that he had led a double life for the last 18 months prior to his death. I don't think it's a coincidence that that began right as I was finishing my postdoctoral fellowship and we were going to join practices. We had just moved into a bigger office suite. And he kind of, I think, sought out a substitute audience of people who he could be the authority to, that he could, that needed him. Because I didn't need him at that. I wanted to be with him, but I did not need him at that point. He wanted to be needed. And so he found himself in a situation where he could give money and have a guaranteed audience, and they would put up with it because they wanted his money. He bought them cars. He paid their rent. He bought groceries. So it was more than just the cash even. And when money ran out, they didn't take to it well. As it turns out, Alan Canty had been living a secret life separate from the one that he shared with Jan. On nights that he told Jan that he was working overtime, Alan was actually visiting the seedier parts of Detroit and meeting with an 18-year-old working girl along with her 30-something-year-old pimp-slash-boyfriend. Both were drug addicts. 
Over time, Ellen became more and more involved with the pair, often buying clothes or groceries for them, or just giving them some extra cash on a regular basis. By the time of the murder, it was reported that Ellen had given away about $100,000, including buying them a house. This excessive giving had pushed Alan to the point where he needed to constantly borrow large sums of money, and when he just couldn't give anymore, that's where the relationship with the pair ended, and you can probably imagine what happened next. During Jan's time of grief, these revelations would prove to be devastating. I think I had two equally strong emotions. One was anger, like, how dare he do this? How selfish and how short-sighted can you be? Even a child would know this is dangerous. And the second reaction I had was I felt so foolish and inept because here I am now a psychologist, and I didn't even see it under my own roof. It was really made me question my abilities. It's like, how could I have been so blind? How could I not have questioned and was there things I didn't see or should I have questioned more? I spent that whole winter beating myself up that way. It was like, what did I miss? How could I have missed it? What should I have asked? Um, and so it was a long, difficult winter. It was really difficult. It was, I didn't want to be around anybody. I was in this huge house that I did not feel safe in. Not that it wasn't in a bad neighborhood, but it's big. And I was by myself and you know, he had given away everything. And uh, I was really worried about being homeless at that point, ironically living in this huge house. But I didn't know how I was going to make it through the winter. And so I started conserving every single way I could. I, I, I ate less. I turned the heat down. I conserved my trips to the store. I did my own snow shoveling. I sold everything I could think of just to get through the winter and hoping somebody would come along and buy the house, which didn't happen for till the following summer. This right here is the side of true crime that rarely gets covered. When the dust settles and the case has been cracked, the victims are the ones left to deal with the aftermath. One can only imagine how difficult it must have been for Jan to continue living on as the widow of a murder victim, and especially so when the story unraveled the way that it did. I would call it conflicted grief because there was relief in the grief. I was still grieving in a natural way for the life I had, and the, or I should say the life I thought I had, and the marriage I thought I had. And I want to be clear on this point. He wasn't all bad. I mean, it wasn't like all 10 years were awful. It wasn't. It was the last 18 months that were really bad. But prior to that, it wasn't that way. And I, and I had the natural grief you would have for losing a spouse who treated you well and who died such an awful death. But on the other hand, with the last 18 months and the lies and the infidelity and the stealing from us, I had such outrage. I was relieved he was gone. I would not have wanted him back. And yet that's not something you can publicly say. And I'm not even sure I had the words for it then. I just knew I felt tormented and torn inside between my emotions of his passing. I mean, it was clear in my mind I, if I could turn the clock back, I would not have stayed with him. I, that's for sure. But I, I wouldn't have wished on him what happened to him either. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And so what do you do in that situation? 
How do you move on when you are constantly tormented by the worst moment in your life? Where can you go when you don't even feel safe in your home? What does it take to truly put this behind you? I had one very kind neighbor, and she gave me the one thing I really, really needed, which I didn't even understand how much I needed till she offered. She said, "Why don't you spend some nights at our house, away from your memories, and you can get some sound sleep in our house because nobody will know you're here." And she gave me the key to the back door of this gorgeous house. And they had a guest room upstairs, and it was circular. I'll never forget it. It was beautiful. And I remember laying in bed there one night, and I was watching the leaves fall uh, at night, uh, the shadows on the walls, and I thought, I'm going to change my name. Why not? And I'm going to leave here. Like, there's no reason for me to stay. My my family's all gone. I have no kids. It's true that I have my practice that I had just started, but I can start over on that. And if I can sell the house, that'll be my my ticket out of here. And at that point in time, I'd also started getting hang-up calls, and I kept changing my phone number. As I don't know how it happened. I never did figure it out, but it was unnerving. And I was also sick and tired of questions from people who felt they had the right to be intrusive, and they didn't have the right. And I got so sick of being asked, "How could you not know?" And so I decided, you know, after a year and a half of this, it's not going to be over. I've, I'm still young enough; I can start over. And, the, and again, the internet wasn't around at that point, so I packed up and left. It was hard to do because I loved Detroit. It was my home. I loved the music and the history and the the seasons, and I had friends there and so many good memories. It was not an easy decision, but I felt like I didn't know what my future could hold unless I did that. So I sold everything, packed up, and left, and changed my name, and basically lived under the radar for 30 years, and nobody knew. What was that experience like for you? You know, how was it like trying to navigate this new identity while at the same time carrying such a heavy burden? I was so good at putting it in a cupboard in the back of my mind that I just sealed it off, and I felt exhilarated. I felt like people didn't know me. Everything was new. I I'd, I'd never been on a a pig farm before. <laughs> I had uh, never uh, taught before. Uh, I'd, I'd always been a clinician. Uh, and I loved teaching, I found out, and I threw myself into my job 110%. It was a very positive time in my life. I felt I could really sleep soundly. I felt safe. I felt um, in charge of my life again. It was a wonderful time. And people... <laughs> I can't speak for them, but I'm sure looking back, they wondered why I was so private. Like, because that's a natural thing when you meet somebody that comes in from out of state and they're they're now working with you to, at some point, say, "Oh, so have you ever been married before?" And yeah, and I'd say things like, "Oh, yeah, but he died," and people just assumed he died in a car wreck or a heart attack, and I let it go at that. And if they dared ask a second question, "How did he die?" I'd say, "I'll tell you about it someday," but <laughs> I just did not want to go there. 
It's almost poetic how things played out. Jen had her life ruined because her husband Alan had led a double life, and yet here she was leading her own version of a double life. For the sake of her privacy, I never did ask about where she went, what her other name was, or what she did exactly. All I know is that in this other life, Jen was mainly a professor, and that she kept up this other identity for roughly 30 years. You could say that it was a form of coping. You could call it a way for her to move on. Personally, I just like to think of it as a rather extreme form of compartmentalizing. However, Despite how well Jen thought she was doing in her new life, her past eventually did catch up to her. There was a lecture that a physician was giving on some topic, I don't remember what it was, but in a side comment, the physician stated, people that live with a secret for a long time pay for it physically. And at that same point in time, coincidentally, there was a coworker missing. And people were all abuzz about that. And I had people coming up to me and saying, oh, could you imagine having a family member missing? <laughs> and I would say, oh, no, I can't imagine that. And then in my mind's eye, I'm like, you phony, look at you. Of course you can relate to that. And you're telling everybody you can't. You're leading a double life. And you call yourself a psychologist? I mean, and I kind of beat myself up again. <laughs> So um, I went back to my office after that lecture that physician gave, and I had it by this time collected a bunch of my favorite books, which are all about people that have been through horrific situations, ve very different one from another. And I looked over at them, and I thought, you know, if they can talk about it, I can talk about it too. Now we're talking, this has been 30 years. Hmm. And so I went to one of my friends, and I told her, I said, you know, you think you know about my history, but you don't. And I started telling her about it. And of course, her eyes went kind of wide, but she was nice about it. And nothing bad happened. And then I tried it again, and nothing bad happened. And But this time, the internet had come around. And I stumbled across a blog all about his murder. And I was reading it surreptitiously, yeah. and watching the comments. And it started thawing me, I guess is a way to put it, where I I kept thinking, you know, maybe there is a story in me. I could, I could write about it. I could talk about it maybe someday. But once I started to write it, I could not keep up with my fingers. I mean, my thoughts were light years ahead. I couldn't keep up the writing fast enough once I set my mind to do it. And at any rate, I, I finally, quote, came out of the shadows and made a couple comments on the blog, and people assumed I was faking it, that I wasn't really who I said I was. But in, in essence, people were extremely supportive for the most part. And I was glad that I, that I dropped the mask and I decided to be more authentic. It was really awkward initially because I was so in the habit of the other. I, I, I still felt this twinge of wanting to protect him. Isn't that strange? After all that time, because people would ask me, well, isn't it true that he had a psychotic break at one point? And at first I was going to say no, and then I thought, no, that is part of the story. I've got to talk about that too. So I kept peeling it and talking about it. And the more I did, the more relaxed I got. And then I, the other thing that happened, which I think had a huge influence on me, 
was, as I mentioned to you, I was teaching, and I started, I was teaching cross-cultural psychotherapy. It was a class I wanted to teach, and nobody else wanted it. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to talk about other cultures, if I'm going to be teaching cross-cultural psychotherapy, I'd better travel. So I started traveling internationally, always to out-of-the-way places. And it made me really appreciate what the resources I had. It's like I didn't feel sorry for myself. I mean, through this whole ordeal, I had uh, fresh water, I had medical insurance, I had transportation. I met people that would never have any chance at that in their lifetime for any reason whatsoever. And boy, did it put it in perspective. It's like you have nothing to complain about. I mean, when you're looking at people who have such a dire need for a physician and will never see one, have never had clean drinking water, don't know what it's like to go to school, how can you feel sorry for yourself? You can't. And it just made me like buck up and get on with it. You don't have it so bad. You don't. And that put it in in a broader perspective that I could have ever envisioned if I hadn't traveled internationally. Yeah. I I think that message is really powerful as well because especially when people go through like a really messed up tragedy, right? Really something bad happens. The temptation is always there to view them as a victim. And then... I guess, you know, if you are that person who's gone through something terrible and that people all around you treat you like a victim, that mentality sticks as well. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get yourself out of it unless you, like like you said, put yourself in perspective and kick yourself in the butt and (laughs) get up and move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many people out there who have such awful burdens Mm -hmm. to bear. And and many people do it with dignity and humor even. And I just felt like, yeah, it happened, but it, it's not the worst thing in the world. I, I I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But my goodness, the, the things I have learned from traveling, it's hard to put it into words even. It's more of an emotional experience than a, than a verbal one. But I'm so grateful that I had the opportunities that I did because it's totally different when you're in that culture than reading about mm. it. It's, and in fact, um, a little of an aside, uh, I adopted two girls during this whole mess, mm. and one of them started turning into a little princess on me, and I wasn't going to have it. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, we're going to go to Kenya, and we're going to build girls' schools because you all do nothing but complain about <laughs> high school. And it changed her. When we got back, I said, so how does your house and how does your surroundings look to you now? what is the biggest impression that's left on you? And she said to me, I love my toilet. I love, I love paved roads. <laughs> and she was never that little princess again. <laughs> this episode began with a brief discussion about the hidden side of true crime. We took a look at Jan's background, the trauma and grief that she went through, the anger and the frustration surrounding her late husband, her decision to take up a new identity for 30 years, and finally the shift in perspective that allowed the real Jan Canty to resurface again. And believe it or not, she's actually published a book to tell her story, one that touches on the very topic that we started off with. My number one goal 
is to speak for homicide survivors, particularly homicide survivors who've been confronted with a grisly homicide and hounded by the media. Because public in general, at least in the United States, I, I think they think that the story ends in the trial or in, with the incarceration. That's so not true. That's where it starts. And the people that are left to grieve in the shadows are totally forgotten. It's like they don't exist, like this crime existed in a bubble. And I want to speak to the repercussions of what can happen when a death occurs. So by writing the book, I want to speak out for homicide survivors. And in fact, I went to a, did a speaking engagement last August in Reno to an international group of homicide detectives. And I was talking about parallels between work as a homicide investigator and being a homicide survivor to reduce this notion of them and us apples and oranges. And it was about a 50-minute talk, and I had two or three people come up later and say, you know, not one person left. You could hear a pin drop. And I had a couple of homicide detectives tell me that in their 40 years on the job that they learned more about being a homicide survivor than they had their whole years on the career. There's just so much that's not known, not talked about, that's presumed or ignored. And, And I hope by writing the book, it'll show the ramifications and how complex it can be when there is a murder uh, to people's lives. I want them to know that they're not alone, that it feels like they are, but there are other people who've gone through horrific things too. There is hope. They need to come 50% of the way and search it out, take off their mask, and reveal who they are. And, And in the end, they will undoubtedly find that there is a great deal of support for them out there and that they can grow through this and grow around the tragedy. It won't ever go back to baseline, however. That's a false expectation. I always like to think of Kinshue. And I mention that to people, and I, you know, the the art of porcelain when it breaks to take this gold resin and reassemble a porcelain, a valuable porcelain piece. It's more beautiful and it's more valuable. It has a history and its own uniqueness, its own story that a brand new piece of porcelain can never have, who's never been through it. And that's how I think of homicide survivors: is that we're like Kinshue, and that's the image I have in my mind. And so with that brings the end to this episode and to season two of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much, much thanks to Jan Canty for sharing her incredible story. I really cannot think of a better way to summarize what this podcast is about other than Jan's last few statements. Indeed, many people go through screwed up moments in their lives and many more carry on hardships and burdens for years and years. And while you could choose to see those experiences as cracks and flaws, realize that there is often an entirely different perspective waiting to be explored. One that frames screwed up moments as episodes of growth, trials of learning, and ultimately fragments of a unique, beautiful whole. If you'd like to get in touch with Jen or check out her book, I will be leaving links in the episode description. Do check them out. 
With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moment story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening and I'll see you soon for season three.